Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 52 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Ben K.D. Pierce, a Ph.D. student in astrophysics and astrobiology at Canada's McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. He's an expert on the origins of life's building blocks here on Earth. Pierce's research focuses on the origin of RNA in Earth's earliest warm little ponds. In 2017, Pierce and colleagues won the PNAS Cozzarelli Prize for their theoretical models testing the meteoritic delivery hypothesis for the origin of RNA in these ponds. But today we'll primarily be discussing what we still don't know about the origins of our own RNA and DNA and the prospects for solving these final mysteries of our genetic code. Pierce joins us from Hamilton, Ontario. Ben, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Happy to be here. First off, let's define a few terms for the listeners. What do we mean when we actually say genetic code? So the genetic code is, is really the instructions for how to translate the blueprint of life, uh, so the genes, uh, DNA, into, uh, so this is the instructions on how to build you. This is what all the information that makes you, you. So the, the genetic code is what translates this, uh, this blueprint into the molecules that make you uh, and carry out all the functions in the body, the proteins. So if I could make a crude analogy uh, to a computer, because we, we all have computers, we all have cell phones that are smart. So there is a code for your cell phone, for your laptop, that when you, uh, you know, say press a, a button on your phone or you, you press the touch screen, there is a code that interprets that and translates it into functionality on your screen. And your phone doesn't work without this code. So just like life doesn't work without the genetic code, your phone won't work out with its underlying code. So I guess the, the thing that confuses most people, including myself, so how can different species take such different forms and different functions with a code yeah. that's all based on the same thing? I mean, that's the confusing part. <laughs> I mean, it's an, uh, uh, and to give you an analogy, I mean, let's talk about manufacturing. So mm -hmm. how can you start out with a code that looks basically the same to the novice, but a code that would create a, a Ford uh, a 150 as opposed to a Jaguar? The, the answer is really... It's really uh, length of sequences. DNA language has four letters. And if you put these four letters in a different sequence uh, of some, some N numbers sequence, you get a, uh, an information blueprint that can make a thing. Now, if you have a really long, uh, like a human-sized genome, which has you know, 21 chromosomes, each that has uh, you know, millions and, and, and billions of bases long, then you can have a pretty complex instruction uh, manual for how to build a different thing. And, and organisms really have these giant genomes that are just, you know, millions and, and, and billions of bases long. So now what do you mean having by that complexity? Define what you mean yeah. by base, the term base. What is a base? Yeah, so the, so the base is the letter uh, of, the, of the DNA. 
The four letters of DNA are A, G, C, and T. Uh-huh. And if you put them in, and if you put them in a different sequence, you know, say A, G, G, C, 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 A, A, G, C, T, you have a different um, piece of information. Let's back up a bit. You know, basically, what is a nucleic acid? And mm-hmm. we're dealing with RNA, which we think preceded DNA. And RNA stands for ribo- r- ribonucleic acid. And DNA stands for deoxyribonucleic acid. What does ribonucleic acid mean? What does deoxyribonucleic mm-hmm. acid mean? And what is a nucleic acid? Uh, like at its fundamental base, it is a piece of information. So sp- specifically, DNA and RNA each have a different... Uh, they, they each have their own unique letter. They each have three of the same letters and one unique letter. So in RNA, the unique letter is U, and in DNA, the unique letter is T. This ribonucleic acid or, or deoxyribonucleic uh, acid uh, is made up of the base, which is the actual letter, uh, which um, can be copied by pairing up with a, with a complementary base. Uh, and then it has the backbone, which makes up the kind of the the strand, you know, the the thing that sticks to the base so that it's in place, um, so so that these things can link up into long strands. And the backbone is made up of two different molecules: the ribose, which is a sugar, and phosphate. And you need both of these because they link together uh, on, on the ribose. The ribose and the phosphate link together at a certain place so that these things can connect together into a long strand or sequence. Um, so uh, DNA is slightly different from RNA in that the sugar is, is deoxyribose instead of, uh, instead of ribose. And um, it's in, in, in essence, DNA is more stable uh, as a uh, information molecule uh, than RNA. Yeah, but what do the terms ribo and deoxy mean exactly? On, on the molecule itself, it's just where, um, where an oxygen atom is. <laughs> uh, so every, every molecule is made up of atoms, and, and DNA and RNA are made up of five different atoms. You have your carbon, your oxygen, your nitrogen, your hydrogen, and then you have one phosphorus atom uh, in the backbone, which is part of the phosphate molecule. So your, your ribose... Uh, is only made up of carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, and it uh, is just has a has a different position for for an oxygen molecule than, than the deoxy. How do we get from just a confluence of inanimate materials, the building blocks of Earth itself, the physical Earth, carbon and all its variations, and all these different elements that form our Earth? How do we get from just a mishmash of all this, you know, volcanism and perhaps mm-hmm. lightning and and uh, precipitation and then mm-hmm. continual bombardments of uh, by asteroids or comets in the very earliest days of our planet to something that basically, if you take a strand of DNA and its helical structure and its double helix, uh, you know, mm-hmm. as, as Crick and Watson famously described in their book, which everybody read in grade school. How do you get from just a confluence of a building box of inanimate molecules to something that looks like it came out of a biotech lab in California? Yeah, yeah it's, it's a lot of processing. The, the one thing to, to latch on to is that 
it's not a random amount of each substance. So when you when you look at the elemental abundances in the universe, the ones that make up life are actually the most abundant. Um, you know, hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, these things, nitrogen, these things are the most abundant elements in the in the cosmos. Uh, so when you're making, when a planet is forming in a in a protoplanetary disk around a, a young sun, um, these are the species that are making up most of the surfaces of these terrestrial planets. You know, there's different phases the planet goes through, a terrestrial planet goes through when it's being made. You know, it's it starts off as a molten ball of lava, and all the heavy stuff gets pulled to the core. That's why there's an iron core because uh, there's a, a differentiation due to the gravity in that in that liquid molten uh, magma. But then once the crust cools, then you have a surface and water uh, can condense out and become a liquid on the surface. And then you can have things like warm little ponds, which are are these sites that are, are really favorable for, for life's formation. So give us an overview of the building uh, of the structure and the makeup in terms of molecular makeup or uh, amino acid makeup of both RNA and DNA? Uh, RNA and DNA are made up of building blocks called nucleotides. And this nucleotide has three components. It has the nucleobase, which is the letter, which is the, the kind of distinct part of each of these building blocks. And then it has the ribose and the phosphate, which make up the remainder, the, the backbone of the... Uh, of the building block. So these are, are slightly different in RNA and DNA, um, just in that uh, in the backbone, it's either ribose in RNA or deoxyribose in DNA. And there's, uh, there's one different base between the two of them, I mean, thymine in DNA and cytosine in RNA. So that's just the basic building blocks. And these are, these are the main biomolecules that you need um, to form somehow on the early Earth in the absence of proteins in the absence of these amino acids chains that make up these proteins that have complex functions that carry out all the functions in, in life as we know it today. So you got to be able to do it without those. And a, and a protein is what? How would you define a protein in terms of chemistry? Right. So a protein is a different kind of a different kind of information molecule. Instead of having nucleotides as its building block, like in DNA and RNA, it has amino acids as its building block. And instead of there being four different ones, like in DNA and RNA, there's 20 different ones, uh, 20 different amino acids in life. And these things, when you chain them together uh, into, into long sequences, uh, they connect at the ends and then they fold into these uh, primary structures. And then they fold again into these secondary structures and then they fold again into tertiary structures. And then the more they, because they fold so much, they have all this catalytic behavior that can cause them to to carry out all these very complex functions in uh, in life, such as you know cell repair or uh, replication or or things like this. But how would any given organism solely reproduce based on its genetic code? There's distinct stages um, in the origin of life, and and when we're talking about the genetic code, we're talking about a, a, a much later stage in in the origin of life uh, okay. after after what's called the RNA world, where uh, where life was mostly based, where RNA kind of took over the function of proteins and DNA all in one molecule. So when we get to the genetic, the evolution of the RNA world into the genetic code, um, now we're at a phase where 
there is uh, there is distinct jobs for each of these molecules. And the proteins have the job of carrying out the function. The DNA has the job of, of carrying out the information, uh, storing the information um, on how to build all these proteins. And then the RNA has a new job of carrying the information over to the ribosome to build the proteins. And the ribosome, again, is what? The ribosome is, is somewhat of the end point of the RNA world. The ribosome is the location where proteins are made. And it's mostly made up of RNA, and it has some protein component to it. But what the ribosome does is it, it takes the instructions from the RNA that copied the DNA. So first, in the process of, of the whole central dogma of life, as people call it, is you have your DNA and it's, it's double-stranded. So it's, it's storing the information, it's just hanging out. Uh, and then uh, RNA uh, protein comes along and attaches RNA. It splits up the, uh, splits up the double strand into single stranded. RNA building blocks come over and copy or transcribe that information. And then they latch off and then they, this is called messenger RNA. It comes over to the ribosome and then it gets fed through the ribosome these building blocks called tRNA, which which uh, are the basis of the genetic code, then attach amino acids in the order that that RNA um, information in, uh, instruction molecule uh, said that they should be in. So those amino acids attach, and then the protein uh, it folds and then uh, carries out whatever function that protein does. But you actually believe that, I mean, there are two competing theories. We're going to get into those a bit later. But you actually believe that RNA... Mm -hmm preceded DNA. In other words, Earth had an RNA world before it had a DNA, before DNA uh, formed. And uh, But then once DNA formed, RNA, RNA played a role as kind of a, a translator, a messenger, kind mm -hmm. of a, a piece of the puzzle that facilitated replication in life. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Uh, so this is, <laughs> this is a great topic for a show about cosmic controversies because uh, in in my field, in the origins of life research, there are these two competing hypotheses. And uh, I do research on the RNA world hypothesis, but others do uh, research on metabolism first hypotheses. Um, and the, they're, they're different fundamentally in, uh, in principles, but they're also different in locations on the planet where this could have occurred. So the location of the RNA world is a such like a, a warm little pond on the surface, something first introduced by by Darwin in the 18, uh, 1860s as just kind of a, a concept or an imagination of where life could form. Uh, and then metabolism first models for the origin of life focus on hydrothermal vents at the ocean floor. Uh, these areas that are, are substantially different uh, in salt content, in in the fact that they don't have wet dry cycles like a warm little pond does they're always surrounded by water um, and then they have these these volcanic chambers below that spew out co2 um, and then there's a, a bunch of clays at the base that have uh, interesting behaviors um, some some which make hydrogen gas so you could have these these different uh, molecules for making for potentially making a metabolism the the reason why we do research on the rna world hypothesis is because there's a lot fewer and smaller barriers in our understanding of how life could emerge in a warm little pond. Um, in, in, in what's called an information-first model, like the RNA world, uh, you just need the building blocks of RNA to be present in the pond, and then dozens of experiments have shown how you can 
polymerize them, how you can chain them together to make long strands of RNA. And then other experiments have shown that when you fold, when these RNA uh, molecules fold on each other and become catalytic, what, which is just if they're long enough, then they become catalytic. Now, what do you mean by the term uh, then, catalytic? We know what a catalytic converter is in our car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Catal catalytic it, catalytic in, in, uh, in biology essentially means like it makes some process occur faster. Uh, so uh, the most important one at this stage is replication or, or reproduction. Okay. So if you have, yeah, if you have an RNA molecule that can fold, on itself, it can attach to a strand of RNA and uh, copy it. It can it can grab a building blocks from the environment, attach them to it, and make a copy of that strand, which is is key for life. You know, you need reproduction. You need some sort of inheritance in order for evolution to occur. So there has been experiments which have shown that these RNA molecules have catalytic behaviors and can be involved in in copying other RNA molecules. Okay. So when when thinking about this, we're like, well, this this has a lot of ground truth to it. It has a lot of experimental backing. So I so I should state my bias <laughs> uh, that I do research, um, you know, on on the origin of life in warm little ponds and not hydrothermal vents. You know, when I say that there's, I find this to be more plausible. You know, take that with with that knowledge. You know, certainly the warm little pond hypothesis doesn't have everything figured out either. Right. But, uh, the main problem we see with hydrothermal vents and metabolism first models uh, is that they rely on creating a metabolism out of just co2 and h2 coming out of these vents and uh, and from water rock interaction and clay catalysts but there but there is no um, there's no experiments which can show this emergent metabolism and if you have a hypothesis it's key that it's possible to falsify it. This is absolutely critical in science. So in uh, all of these models of, of potential metabolisms that are occurring in hydrothermal vents are, are models, they're, they're, they're hypotheses, but you need to be able to test it. And that's the one thing that we see is lacking in these environments. This, this hypothesis has, hasn't been around nearly as long. So but that, you're, that's what you're saying is this yeah. idea, is, this vent idea has really only been around since the late 80s. So the average person, they hear RNA and DNA, and they look at this thing, and they're amazed. And, and just as you describe, the, it, it is very complicated. This, I mean, even at the, at the earliest stages, this prebiotic chemistry is extraordinarily complicated. And it just kind of it is mind-boggling. I guess the big question is, what do you expect if we find life on Mars? Would it have a totally different genetic code than than the one that we have on Earth? Or would it be possible that life on Earth and Mars had the same DNA? And if so, mm -hmm. would that automatically mean that life on Mars and Earth had a shared history? Or could there possibly be a way that our own DNA has a larger cosmic footprint? This is the huge question, is, is whether evolution of life is convergence or, or not. So is, is DNA, RNA, and protein naturally the way that life will evolve because maybe dna is the most stable and best error free or error free low uh low at producing error uh information molecule and proteins are the best at doing functions with these specific 20 amino acids and the specific genetic code uh, which knows how to translate or does it 
not really matter so much that life chose these particular bases for DNA and for RNA and these particular amino acids for proteins. So when we look for life on Mars, continue to look, I should say, if we ever do find a microbe and we try and find out what its information molecule is, because it needs to have some sort of information to be living, it needs something to copy. If it's first, the first question to ask is what, what are its bases? Is it using AGCT like DNA uh, for Earth, uh, life on Earth? Or is it using different ones? And it, it's very possible that it could be using different ones. For instance, there's a virus on Earth today that instead of A, it uses a different base that we call Z. So even on Earth, I mean, people don't generally call, consider viruses to be living, but even on Earth, there are, uh, there are viruses, there are these, these uh, things that use some sort of different DNA than, than all the rest of life. So it's certainly possible that, that you could find that on Mars as well. And if you did, it would be strongly considered that, that this is a second origin for life. So Mars once had a, a wet past for about a billion years after it formed. Uh, it would have also had ponds on the surface. Uh, and it probably also would have had hydrothermal vents um, at its ocean floor. So life could certainly have emerged there. And if it emerged differently with different information, uh, than DNA, then you would, I and mean, most people would suggest, okay, well, this is, this is a second genesis. This, this isn't a shared history of life. On the other hand, if it, if it does use DNA and RNA and proteins and the same amino acids, the same bases, um, then that doesn't necessarily mean a shared history. It could be that just could, could be convergent behavior, um, of, of the evolution of life. But I would, uh, the biggest the biggest criticism of finding that sort of life would be you got to prove it's not contaminant because this shares all of the sorts of biomolecules of life as we know it. So you got to prove that you didn't bring that life there. And it's right. very yeah, easy yeah. to not completely sterilize your over. So you expect if we find life on a dwarf planet like Ceres, if we find life uh, on Titan or Europa, mm -hmm. uh, and we get, we're somehow able to get samples back and look for the genetic code of this life. You don't expect yeah. it to be based on anything like RNA or DNA. I would suspect that it wouldn't. It, I would suspect that it might have some similarities in common. So, you know, maybe, maybe it has some of the same bases. Uh, maybe it uses some of the same amino acids for its proteins, but... Yeah, I, it, that's hard to predict. <laughs> okay, it, it could or it couldn't. Those are those are the two options, and and I I hope that it doesn't, because it's much easier to uh, to prove that it originated from there if it doesn't use um, DNA, RNA, and proteins as we as we use them. So, in a 2016 Forbes post, I wrote that three of the five nucleobases, molecular subcomponents of information-bearing nucleotides, which make up our genetic code likely came from space, but the origins of two key components of RNA and DNA remain a mystery. Is this still the case? This is what I've been working on for the last four years, so <laughs> something I'm pretty excited uh, about. So in that 2016 article, we, we showed that uh, we were talking about how meteorites contain three of the five nucleobases and how they certainly were delivered to the early Earth. Um, this happened, and they certainly, some of them certainly did fall into ponds, 
and could have seeded them for, for life for those three specific nucleobases. But there were two missing. So this was a big question mark, a big puzzle. Since then, uh, I've switched gears in my research to doing atmospheric models in order to determine if the early Earth was biogenic, which uh, is to say that the early Earth could have produced its own biomolecules and didn't need to have them delivered, for example, by meteorites. And we've been working on this for the last four years, and uh, we have some prelim preliminary results now, which uh, are strongly suggestive that there was a phase during the Hadean Eon, after the Earth first became habitable, when the early Earth was biogenic and could have made not just the three nucleobases present in meteorites, but all five present in DNA and RNA. The, the Hadean, the first point when the Earth could have been habitable is about 4.5 billion years ago. Good gosh. So during the, well, the I know. The, sol <laughs> the solar system is only, what, the 4.56 at yep. most billion years? <laughs> so you're saying that within 50 million years of our solar nebula forming into a, a nascent, really, really primitive solar system, our Earth formed probably within 20 million years of that. Yeah, it wasn't habitable at that point, mind you. And there is the moon forming impact, which occurred shortly after it formed, right, which yep. would have reset the clock as well. But by 4.5 billion years ago, at the earliest, and this is, there are error bars on this, obviously. Mm -hmm. at the, at, at, by 4.5 at the earliest, the Earth could have been habitable. And within the first couple hundred million years, there, there was a phase where the atmosphere was favorable um, for producing the the main precursor to all of these biomolecules, which is uh, is hydrogen cyanide. You told me that uh, there's no compelling evidence as of yet for forming cytosine in situ on the nascent Earth. So mm -hmm. there are several different uh, nucleobases that are needed for these nucleo uh, for these nucleic acids, and uh, one of them that, that seems to be missing is cytosine. Uh, so how yep. did the first strands of RNA and hence the first life on Earth obtain this missing uh, cytosine? So cytosine is one of the letters uh, in both RNA and DNA. Uh, the problem with cytosine and the reason why it's not present in meteorites is that it is very unstable in liquid water. And I say very unstable, but really it'll survive for human life lifetimes, but it won't survive for... Um, geological lifetimes and, uh, and the, uh, the lifetimes in which these meteorite parent bodies um, are, are warm and, and have liquid water interiors. So the way that we now, uh, the, uh, what current research, our current research is showing, the way that we could get them on the early Earth in a biogenic atmosphere is from hydrogen cyanide forming in the atmosphere, raining out so it's, it's water-soluble, hydrogen cyanide. It'll dissolve in water. It'll rain down into warm little ponds, and then will undergo aqueous chemistry or liquid water chemistry to form cytosine. And what is, a, um, first of all, what is hydrogen cyanide? Because cyanide, we know, is, is a extraordinarily poisonous. Yeah, it was yes. Isn't that gas. ironic? <laughs> ironic. What irony. Something that is so deadly to us as humans helped form the basis of life here on Earth. Early yeah. Earth. Wow. It's 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 weird, but hydrogen cyanide is is so reactive in water and so good at producing all sorts of different biomolecules. It I mean it's it's it requires radiation as well. 
So you need to radiate your hydrogen cyanide solution with UV light um, because another key building block you need is formaldehyde, which is also something <laughs> not super great for life. And these two things together in liquid water can make all five of the nucleobases in DNA and RNA. And what about the the missing thymine? Is, is it a reasonable guess that thymine was incorporated into DNA much later during the emergence of the genetic code? So that's no longer, with, our, with the biogenic world, it's no longer necessary that thymine came later because it could be produced just the same as the other four nucleobases. Okay. Um, it would have been present at the same time. Um, it wouldn't be necessary for RNA, but... Uh, there are models out there where RNA and DNA could have formed at the same time and potentially um, helped each other out in some uh, in some processes. The main one is that RNA is quite s- sticky, so when you when it's trying to replicate uh, an RNA strand, it doesn't want to separate after it's done. Um, but if you had some DNA in there, then it would be easier to separate. And DNA itself is strand-like. I mean, you can isolate it. And it's kind of the sticky uh, strand like strings of goo almost, isn't it? Salty, a little bit salty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen experiments on Bill Nye uh, where they do <laughs> okay. that with strawberries. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So your big news then is in four years' time, or five years' time, I, I don't remember exactly when that article was published on Forbes, mm-hmm. but uh, in four years' time you've gone from missing two uh, potential base nucleobases where you couldn't figure out where where two of these nucleobases particularly came from and now you've solved that mystery yeah we think we we at least have now a plausible model for where they came from yeah it's and i and because they're not present in meteorites i i am (laughs) you know i'm somewhat leaning more to uh the idea that the early earth was was biogenic and life formed um, in this hydrogen cyanide-rich atmosphere, and so you think you think that that both cytosine and the missing thymine came from this hydrogen cyanide-rich atmosphere. Originally, yeah, yeah. After it rains down into the ponds. So you write that in a recent paper that RNA molecules are made up of sequences of four different nucleotides, the latter of which can be formed through a reaction of a nucleobase with a ribose and reduced phosphorus source. So why is phosphorus so important to all this? Phosphorus makes up part of the backbone of the DNA and the RNA. It's it's a essential um, component of this of this backbone. It's it's an essential to the structure of these molecules, and uh, for containing uh, the entire building block and and attaching to uh, the ribose in RNA or the deoxyribose in DNA to make these chain links for these. Uh, for these uh, polymers, for these information molecules. And uh, you write that early Earth's atmosphere was likely dominated by carbon dioxide, nitrogen, sulfur dioxide, and water. Our one idea is that nucleobases were delivered by interplanetary dust particles uh, and meteorites. Uh, uh, do you still hang on to that idea? Are you more confident that this all formed in situ in atmospheric processes on early Earth? So this is, it's fun to go back and, and, and think about the way you were thinking five years ago. And this is, uh, this is really kind of uh, nostalgic in a sense. <laughs> so yes, the, the, the atmospheric composition, uh, as we thought, and, and it's still the case, uh, 
at, at some point in time was mostly CO2. Uh, but what we're finding is that there was a phase during the Hadean Eon where it wasn't mostly CO2, where it was mostly hydrogen gas. Uh, and this is because of the um, the amount of impactors that are that are hitting the surface, delivering iron, which can then be oxidized by water to expel hydrogen gas. So as as these impactors are really abundant during the early stages of the planet uh, formation, and and after it becomes habitable, they're still bombarding the surface. Um, this H two is the main component that's entering the atmosphere from this uh, iron oxidation uh, reaction. So, uh, but and then I, and iron oxidation. So you're saying H two hydrogen is in, entering, and then the iron oxidation is what? To tell us what that is. Right. So the 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 meteorites are delivering iron, and there's water on the surface and in the atmosphere. So the the water is turning Fe iron into FeO iron oxide, and the H two is left behind. The H two is entering the atmosphere from these impacts when iron is oxidized by water, but Hydrogen is also light and it escapes from the top of the atmosphere. So as the bombardment rate is declining over the Hadean Eon, your dominant hydrogen-rich atmosphere is becoming much and much less hydrogen-rich. And at the same time, CO2 is outgassing from volcanoes and is starting to build up in the atmosphere. So you're transitioning from this uh, hydrogen gas-dominated atmosphere to this carbon dioxide-dominated atmosphere. So what about the so-called polymerization of nucleotides in these warm little ponds? First of all, tell us, remind us again the term polymerization, because that's not familiar to a lot of people, and yeah. how this takes place in these early warm little ponds. Polymerization is, is a, a word meaning to make a polymer, um, and a polymer is just a, a long chain of building blocks. So RNA is a long chain of nucleotide building blocks, so to polymerize RNA is just to chain the building blocks together uh, into a RNA sequence. So wet-dry cycles are key to this process because in order to chain together the building blocks, you need to remove water. It's, it's what's called a condensation reaction. And once you're in the dry phase, so these ponds dry up because they evaporate, you're removing water from the environment and it becomes a lot easier to have that condensation reaction occur. Once you re-wet, uh, once it precipitates and the pond gets wet again, these, these uh, RNA molecules mix around and they break bonds. But overall, um, this process of wetting and drying uh, cyclically builds up long RNA molecules. This is something that can't happen in, uh, in the ocean because uh, it's always, the ocean is always wet. There's no dry uh, phase, so it's hard to make long polymers in the ocean. Uh, this is why you need metabolism if you're gonna if you're gonna form life in a hydrothermal vent, because you need activated nucleotides like ATP um, that comes from uh, from energy production and metabolism in order to make uh, in order to make polymers in in a constant liquid water phase. And what is ATP? ATP is uh, is the energy molecule of life. This is the, uh, the it stores a bunch of energy, and this energy is used by all of life to, uh, to carry out um, all the things that require energy. The movement of molecules and, and cells and the uh, creation of, uh, of proteins. This is the, it's just the energy unit of life. Is it possible 
that these early building blocks of life could have emerged simultaneously in two different uh, areas. One around hydrothermal vents, let's say, in the Pacific Ocean, and then another, let's say, you know, half a world away in these warm little ponds. Maybe maybe there even could be tidal warm little ponds and not just ponds that are in, inland necessarily. I suppose you could. Uh, but in order for both environments to uh, be considered as, as sites for the origin of life, both groups uh, in, this, in these competing hypotheses have a lot of work to do <laughs> to prove that their environment uh, can uh, emerge life. So, so there's a lot of gaps in knowledge for both hypotheses that need to be filled. And what's probably going to, what's more likely to happen is one of the hypotheses will have some falsifiable gap and it will be falsified and most people will then move on to the other hypothesis for their, for their research for the origins of life. So prior to COVID, when you would go to conferences, international conferences, even on the origin of life, uh, and you would come across these people who advocated the building blocks of life forming around these undersea vents, and they knew that you were an early warm little ponds guy. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have to take yeah. it outside, or were you able to have a coffee with them? What, you know what? <laughs> we, we, we embrace it, actually. So uh, at conferences... We actually have whole sessions that are dedicated to debating ponds versus vents. Is that um, right? For instance, yeah. The, the main conference in, in the field is Astrobiology Science Conference, and there would be a morning session where everyone would present research on ponds, and an afternoon session, everyone would present research on vents, and then there would be a panel discussion where we would debate uh, the different sides. Well, um, and it's, it, 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 we, also, we also invite people from the competing hypothesis to speak at our institution so we can engage in, in discourse over it. And because the worst thing you can do in science is just only, you know, only read articles about your hypothesis and then just become this echo chamber where all your research is supporting your colleagues' research. You know, we, we need to be challenged. And this is, this is a positive thing for this field is to have these competing hypotheses face off against each other. Let me throw something in the mix here. In 2009, I wrote an article that appeared in Scientific American. And in it, I, I write that both DNA and RNA almost certainly were selected and evolved from a large, diverse group of protonucleic acid molecules. But for DNA to RNA to evolve from this group, first they had to be able to replicate. And that involved organizing and copying being via cyclic assembly and dissociation. Uh, and a lot of this sort of cyclic assembly and dissociation is thought to have come by one proponent through the action of getting rid of water and concentrating it in solutions. So one idea is that fast tidal cycling caused by the influence of our moon enabled the formation of precursor nucleic acids. Yeah, this is a sort of a hybrid model of, uh, of warm little ponds it kind of and the ocean. So it's a, it's the idea that you have your wet dry cycles, but instead of it being in an evaporating pond, it's because you have tides rolling in and out, uh, forming these tide pools, um, which get re-wet by the ocean, uh, and then, uh, and then dry up from this water kind of 
entering the water column below. Uh, this is not a model that's really talked about a lot anymore, I would say, but it's not the, the, the main issue is that your you have your ocean as your reservoir. So anytime the, the ocean comes in and, and, uh, delivers, delivers molecules, it's, it's a really dilute source. Uh, so you're not, you're not necessarily, not necessarily a way to concentrate that if you have your ocean as your reservoir, it's much, um, easier to imagine if you're if a pond is your reservoir and you have uh your atmosphere raining down uh precursors uh that when it concentrates um that it can it can have more concentrated solutions than than from an ocean uh but uh, you know i it's it's one model it's plausible it's it's possible but it's not really researched a whole lot right now i would say i don't hear a lot about it at conferences i don't have a lot of problems with it um, I think it's a perfectly reasonable model uh, that that deserves more research and more exploration. One one issue with uh, with saline environments um, is that it's hard to form uh, the cell wall, uh, the the spherical compartments uh, within which you know your genetic information needs to be encapsulated. Um, so we call this vesicles. And experiments show that this doesn't really work as well in salt solution. Um, so a freshwater pond might be more reasonable than a salty uh, tide pool for forming protocells. That'd be that'd be one you know consideration that I would have when before going into into researching this uh, the tide pool model. Um, but with that said, it it does have wet dry cycles, so it has that going for it. Um, that's really good for polymerization and, and forming these, uh, these, uh, nucleic acids. So there's some pros and cons to think about there. Well, if you're going to take this model and base your idea of the evolution of RNA and DNA solely on this model, there is one caveat and it's kind of the rare, it kind of invokes the rare earth hypothesis. And that is without the moon, we may have not have had this fast early tidal cycling, which would have promoted this kind of wet and dry cycle to assemble these nucleotides. You know, our moon may have inadvertently given us a leg up on life if this tidal cycling idea proves to be correct. Yeah, that that as well as the fact that the moon stabilizes our, the uh, our climate. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And that is just a spin axis for, for the lay people, the, the spin axis of, of how the moon stabilizes Earth's spin axis so that it doesn't vary and cause abrupt changes in climate. Yeah, you're right. It, you, you, what you really need to do is have temperature in the range where liquid water can exist for long enough for life to form, which is a big question mark. The closer you are to 65, 70 degrees Celsius, the better, but it could certainly range and, uh, and that wouldn't be too big of an issue. If if the pond froze over, you know, then things would just freeze and progress would stop for as long as until it thawed again. <laughs> did, well, did you mean uh, 65 might... degrees Celsius? Yeah, yeah. Th- that's really great for uh, for the origin of life scenarios because chemistry is a lot more efficient at, at 65 degrees Celsius. And uh, I don't have a calculator with me, but that's, uh, that's well over, what, 110 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. Good gosh. So could life be based on DNA that used different elements? Absolutely. It's possible. 
Um, I shouldn't say absolutely because there's no <laughs> there's no compelling <laughs> evidence to suggest that that DNA exists without <laughs> without the same elements. Um, but it's uh, but you know certainly possible. So this brings us to more controversy. It's a it's a Felisa Wolf Simon controversy according to Wikipedia, <laughs> which you know I love them. You know don't don't write letters. Yeah, yeah. But in 2010, Wolf Simon led a team that discovered GFAJ-1, an extremophile bacterium in Mono Lake, California, which is essentially Death Valley, if I'm not incorrect, that she mm-hmm. and colleagues claimed was capable of substituting arsenic for a small percentage of its phosphorus to sustain its growth. And then a subsequent article in the journal Science uh, entitled a bacterium that can grow by using arsenic instead of phosphorus appeared in the June 3rd, 2011 print version of, of the journal science. But subsequently another group found no detectable arsenic in the DNA of the bacterium. So tell us the story. What's the, what, yeah. <laughs> what's this all about? This is a fascinating story, I think. Um, and it's somewhat of a cautionary tale in scientific research. So the, the, the researcher, Felicia uh, Wolf-Simon, had a hypothesis, which was, what if there is an organism which could replace the phosphorus element with arsenic in the backbone of its DNA? And it's a perfectly reasonable hypothesis. I mean, a lot, a lot of science is based on hypothesis, hypotheses, and, and it's, uh, it's a good way to do science as well. Um, one of the reasons to think this could be possible would be uh, life. certain forms of life use different metals to activate enzymes. So some use molybdenum, some use tungsten, uh, some use cadmium, others use zinc. So because there's some differences in life on which elements can be used to, uh, to activate enzymes, maybe there's an, a difference in elements that could be used for the backbone of DNA. So she set out to Mono Lake. She took a, uh, a sample and isolated a bacterium from this sample, and she fed it different nutrients. So in, in one culture, she fed it phosphates, which is what is in DNA in life as we know it, and it grew. In another sample, she didn't feed it phosphate. She fed it arsenate, which is the analogy to phosphate. Uh, phosphate's PO4-3-, arsenate is... ASO43 minus. So it's a similar uh, molecule, just replaced the phosphorus with arsenic. And it grew uh, not as well, probably three or four times less. Uh, it grew less efficiently. Uh, and then in the control sample, she fed it neither arsenate or phosphate, and it didn't grow at all. So this was, it's pretty exciting uh, because something was happening. And it seemed as though one one conclusion you can reach from that is that the bacterium was able to, or the bacteria, I should say, the whole culture of them, was able to replace the phosphorus with arsenic in its backbone of its of its genetic structure. Now, these other, you know, there was a press release, there was a, a, a NASA press release and, and a lot of excitement in the field, but anytime there's something of this impact in the field of science, a lot of other labs come in and try to repro- reproduce the results. And this is a necessary component of science. You need to be able to reproduce the results for it to be science. And another lab couldn't reproduce the results. They, they fed it arsenate, 
um, from a different source in their lab, and they weren't able to get this um, culture to grow. Uh, and since then, what's been found out is that uh, arsenate actually was producing, was providing a source of phosphate for that original culture to grow. And how it was doing it is it was breaking down the ribosome of the dead uh, bacteria, uh, which, as I mentioned earlier in this episode, the ribosome is made up mostly of RNA and RNA's backbone has phosphate in it. So it was providing a source from phosphate, a phosphate from the dead uh, bacteria in the culture so that it could grow. So um, her, her science was, you know, was, was really, sh really proving that phosphate was necessary for this bacteria to grow um, and not, uh, and then it couldn't use, it wasn't using arsenic as a replacement. And so, do, so does this close the door on, on the possibility of using arsenic as a substitute for phosphate in any event? I think these experiments show that that this bacteria can't do it. This bacteria cannot replace its phosphate with arsenate. But, um, you know, we emerged and all the organisms on this planet emerged using the same genetic code, using the same DNA and RNA. You can imagine on another world having a genetic molecule like DNA with arsenic in the backbone and that life certainly would have no problem using arsenic to rebuild its its genetic material. Um, so it's just not possible as far as we know on Earth with Earth-based life. But there's nothing to stop uh, life on an exoplanet from from using arsenic. Okay, so we ruled out arsenic. But let's say, uh, and which is a, a deadly poison, by the way. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. another deadly poison. But, <laughs> but anyway, so if you were going to, take bets you know if you were out drinking with your buddies and and you were saying what element you know give me give me one what element could we replace such and such what would you what would be another contender aside from arsenic Ooh, uh that's a tough question because in terms of elemental abundances in the universe we're using the ones that are most common <laughs> ah, okay. uh so so in order to use something uh to replace an element in in life with something uh less common uh is a little bit more difficult to imagine and there's there certainly hasn't been proven to be any good runner-ups for for life on earth so that's really that's really open for um i think for sci-fi to kind of get in there and and come up with ideas it's uh it's not um it's not easy to, to answer that question what puzzles you most about the evolution of our genetic code. I'm I'm someone who likes to start from the bottom when researching something. Start from I you know I, 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 with my background in astrophysics, I usually start from <laughs> from the formation of the planet uh, and then move forward and try to figure out how life emerged in on a habitable but lifeless world. Most of my research is in getting to RNA. And there are still some gaps in knowledge uh, for getting there. And the main one is to make the entire building block of RNA, the nucleotide. This has not been done in a chemistry lab in one, uh, what you call one pot, like the one pot synthesis. And in a warm little pond on the early earth, you would only have your one pond and you would have to make life in that pond, you wouldn't have a chemist present to be able to add ingredients in sequence and change the temperature 
as they please. This pond had to do it all on its own. So I think uh, finding a way to make the entire nucleotide building block in one pot in, in high yields, it has been done in very, very low yields before. Um, this is some work by Carl Sagan uh, in the 1960s. But uh, in high yields, um, this is something that's still kind of a question and, and something that I would really love to explore more. Was the evolution of life on Earth a fluke? I think fluke is not is not a word that goes with evolution because because evolution is a fundamental theory of nature. The way evolution occurs is is not really a fluke at all. It's always acting on all of the molecules in the system and the system, you know, the, the larger systems, the universe and the smaller systems, the galaxy and even smaller is is the solar system and the planet system. And evolution is acting on all of these different environments uh, in, in, uh, in different ways. And once you get down to the system of a planet and the system of a pond, the, the evolution, uh, evolutionary processes can be a lot more complicated at building up more complex uh, molecules. So I would say, and I'm hopeful that life is prevalent throughout the cosmos because evolution is working at all levels of all at all scales and is always present what goes through your own head uh, when you look up at a clear night sky or at a warm little pond (laughs) 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 couldn't resist that go ahead i i love stargazing i love looking up at the night sky um I started, you know, I started my my career in in astronomy, uh, and you know, I went stargazing a lot, and I, I always love looking for planets. I always love looking for the stars that don't twinkle in the sky, um, and I like to imagine going there someday. I think for me, uh, what I think about most when looking up at the sky is 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 trying to get there. <laughs> I, I really would love to uh, to travel up to space someday, and. It's seeming like with all these uh, all these commercial companies offering tickets that it's going to be more and more possible as time goes on. But uh, yeah, that's what I think about most is 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 going to space and being amongst the amongst the other planets and and amongst the stars. So Ben, as you noted to me earlier, this coming fall you will be beginning a research stint as a Banting postdoctoral fellow at Johns Hopkins University in Maryland. But in the meanwhile. Uh, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email if they want to comment and learn more? Yeah, uh, my social media is, is uh, on Twitter. Is My handle is astrobio underscore Ben. And I post a lot of my research there and a lot about my my path through academia. And when I go to Johns Hopkins in, in September, I'm going to be doing experiments to try and prove some of the uh, models, the theoretical models that we've been running. So I'll certainly be posting about the experiments I'm running uh, and and the results when when the papers get published. So feel free to follow me there if you're if you're interested in origins of life research. Um, and I also have a website which is uh, benkdpierce.com, P-E-A-R-C-E, and that's where I kind of post all of my publications. Um, and you know, anytime I do something with the media or uh, all the all the things that I get up to are in my in my news tab on that. So, you know, feel free to check those out if you're interested. 
As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Ben Pierce, thanks so much for giving us a better understanding of how our genetic code may have actually originated. Thanks so much, Bruce. This was so much fun. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>